All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course, bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Lucky number 13, that's episode 13 of Lone Duck's Gundog Chronicles. Welcome and thank you for joining us. It's Bob and Kevin. We're hanging out here, chilling out, talking about Kevin's bad-to-the-bone deer hunt. Uh, man, we're going to get into that in a second. Um, but first, I want to touch base on a few things from last week's episode. Number one. You, lucky, and we're thankful for, podcast listeners are getting a sweet promo code for Black Friday. We're going to try something new. We finagled some promo codes where when you enter the promo code podcast into the Lone Duck Outfitters website, you'll kind of randomly get selected for a percentage off between 10 and 20% off your entire purchase. So whether you're looking for e-collars or wingers or bark collars or bumpers or some of our sweet Lone Duck swag, promo Which code. is a lot of new swag. Check that out. Oh, it's all new gear. Uh, if you haven't been on the website recently, there's all new gear. Zip-up hoodies, winter hats, um, t-shirts, tank tops, all new gear. Really. Dogtra, e-collars, wingers, lots of action. Lots of good stuff. So, podcast, and you'll randomly get selected for a percentage off, 10 to 20%. Kind of sweet. Um, we also are running a contest where three people are going to win a Lone Duck hat. So, the way to enter is to email loneduckpodcast at gmail.com a recipe of how you like to cook your wild game. Ducks, pheasant, goose, chucker, quail, deer, squirrel. We don't care. But what we're going to do is Kevin and I are going to cook that son of a gun up and pick our three favorite recipes, and we're going to put them on our blog. Right, Kev? Yeah, so we're going to call people out and put a little roundup together on the Lone Duck Outfitters blog. 
uh, shoot it out on social media, send it out in our email blast, which you should be on if you're not, uh, and, and send it out to all our friends. So if you'd like to join, uh, send that to us at LoneDuckPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll get back to you. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, pretty cool. no diggity, no doubt. We got a couple of recipes already that sound pretty delicious. So we're going to fire them up and cook them up and see what they taste like. And again, top three of our favorites, win a lone duck hat. And it's perfect timing because Thanksgiving is around the corner. No diggity. So, Kevin smoked a deer this weekend. It was pretty much your first deer hunt, wasn't it? Never been deer hunting before. Uh, I mean, fall time, whenever I have free time, I usually get out and either go fishing uh, or spend time with the dog and try and poke around for some birds or sit on the boat and duck hunt uh, and ended up becoming friends with... A buddy at you know my I guess my full time job, who has a ton of land. His his grandma's got this huge farm. I um, like it a little bit less than an hour away. I had a little bit of a car ride to get there, uh, and had gotten bit by the bug of hunting recently. So this guy has 187 acres of prime farm community uh, deer hunting land. Nobody hunts it. So I'm talking to him, I'm like, man, you, you, you got to do something here. Like, you, you don't do anything with all that? And a couple of years, fast forward, he got bit by the bug and is jacked up on deer hunting. So I've been giving him some wild game over the past couple of years, uh, trading stories, whatever. And this year, got the invite, snuck my way in. It's awesome. Uh, and got invited to go out deer hunting. So finally, finally got around to it. Uh, and... I mean, I guess I don't see what's so difficult about it. <laughs> uh, no, but it but it was awesome. So I got up really early and made made a mini road trip down and got in a stand. Uh, it was like a little jerry rigged two by four stand, like eight ten feet up in a tree on the edge of an old old uh, like cattle area pasture. Like, yeah, I guess like yeah. Yeah, no, I guess it was like uh, their old old pasture um, it, where they would keep some of the cows at different times of the year and then uh, just sat and waited. And, uh, I mean, I, I was expecting to be bored because so, – so I've never been deer hunting, but turkey hunting, in my opinion, or my preconceived opinion, was going to be very similar where you sit and you wait and you do nothing and you don't move, and you hope something walks by you. I mean, at least with turkeys, you can call to them. You can do a little bit of action like that where you can stay somewhat engaged. But with deer hunting, you're kind of just – there's some pre-scouting, but it's not my land, and I hadn't been out there before. So I was told, like, hey, man, go sit here. So I went and sat there and was hoping something would walk by. Um, And ended up seeing a whole bunch of does, and that was really cool. Uh, didn't have a shot on any of them. I was using my 870, uh, my duck gun, really. Uh, so, I I mean, I don't have a scope on it or anything like that. Just kind of the bead on the end of my gun and threw, threw a slug in there and was going to take a close shot, really, was my game plan. And uh, had a doe come up early, but... It was one of those crazy situations where it was it come it came up the ridge from a 
I don't know, threw a bunch of brush and poked his head around the corner, her head around the corner. And I, you know, uh, brought the gun up and had the bead on her about 60 yards. And uh, I just needed her to take a step. Sitting there talking to myself, one more, just one more. Get, she was broadside, but the body was behind a, a tree in a thicket and whatever, so I couldn't take a shot. And then winded me and moved right back down the ridge. Never saw the actual body on her at, for a clean shot. So um, had some action early in the morning, and then uh, a, a deer came wa- waltzing up the ridge. Beautiful sight. It was a little bit dark. Uh, couldn't really see too well, but so I couldn't see like how big of a deer it was or male or female, but was like, that's a deer coming my way. Let's go. Started following the same track as that doe had. Um, and as it got closer, I was like, ooh, a little bit of headgear on there. That's exciting. Got a tag for one of those. Um, and ended up waltzing through the same spot, through a shooting lane, 60 yards straight ahead of me, and stopped dead in his tracks. Pulled the trigger. Boom. He jumped. Uh, and so I'm like, perfect. I hit him. Nailed him. This is awesome. First hunt. Nice, good-sized deer. This is incredible. So I'm super pumped. And, uh, you know, again, like I've never deer hunted before. Never really tagged a deer. But I've seen or shot enough animals to know that like they don't really go immediately it's not like a boom and they lay down and that's it right it's not like the movies um so it took off running and my thought was don't let him get away and i and i've talked with a few people and i've had a lot of time to reflect on this and i don't like i i I think i made the right decision uh in the split second of don't let him get away because it's booking it and I don't feel like having an hour-long blood trail chase and, and all that stuff that goes along with that. So I took a crack. Uh, full tilt run, I took a crack, let him, or like swung on it like you would a, a, a bird, and flipped it. Absolutely flipped the deer. It was about 45 yards. Um, ended up spining it, which is unfortunate. Um, but again, I thought, I, in my mind, I'm like, I nailed him got to put them down and then and then and then take care of business here and so So it was like um in that split second it was like one of it was two emotions really of like a you don't want him to get away and b you want to finish him off right yeah i mean i i yes yeah like it was like put him out like i i got him and he's running but i got him and so i want to put him out and if i put him on the ground then i know that right like a clean humane kill as best as you can yeah right i, I got yeah. you dude so i would have so made the same kind of, decision yeah and and so i, I you would a, think like in that split second well, i don't know yeah you gotta do what you gotta do and i yeah I, like i guess i kind of i don't know liken it to when you bag a duck or something and it's flopping around in the water and whatever you might tag it again to to kind of finish it off right sure um that was kind of my thought process again 
in two seconds. So there's that. Uh, shot him again, flipped him, um, hopped out of the deer stand. He was kind of kicking around, and so I hauled it over there to finish putting him out. And was walking down the ridge and was like, well, hot dang. He's got, it, it ended up being an, an eight point uh, buck, which was awesome. It was pretty cool. Um, and I could see that he was a bigger deer and a male and all that stuff. So, I, I mean, it wasn't like I, I couldn't tell what it was, but couldn't see exactly like, I don't know, how old the deer was and, and, and whatnot. Um, so that was really cool. It was a cool little like surprise, I guess you could say. So I popped the deer uh in in the lungs to to finish him off and dragged him out and gutted him kind of cool, learn as you go on um field dressing the deer which was cool so my, my buddy whose uh land i was hunting on was able to come over and help me out and showed me a thing or two but we kind of did it together like i said he's still new to the game um so he's done a handful of deer but isn't like an expert in it so we kind of figured it out together which Honestly, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Um, I mean, for the lone duck crew out there who's cleaned their fair share of birds and different animals and whatever, I mean, the guts are in the same spot. The hearts are in the same spot. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where if you know the general anatomy and know not to get deer crap and piss all over the place like don't spoil the meat and pull everything out pretty pretty much how it goes you know bleed it out hang them up in somewhere cold and uh spent four hours uh this past sunday cutting them up into steaks and i'm gonna grind up uh, a good pork butt and uh make some like burger meat and stuff and give it to some friends it's gonna be pretty cool man i'm i'm excited it was an interesting experience to say the least. Yeah, man. I'm s- really proud of you for getting the deer ethically and putting it out and learning how to get your hands dirty and grinding it all up and cutting it all up and butchering it yourself. And it's really a neat thing to, like, you know, killing an animal is, I guess, like, when I. It's bittersweet. It's an interesting experience. Yeah, it's an experience. There's people exactly out there who are it. like, oh, it's no big deal. It's, you know, you can't. But yeah, they've killed 50 deer by the time they're 30. Yeah, well, and I'm 28 and I haven't. And right. I've killed small game and birds and this and that and then whatever, but I just never deer hunted. We didn't really grow up doing that. Right. And to walk up on a live squealing deer is a different experience, man. Yeah, I it's get different. it. I, I yeah and I don't know I think it's it's a really n- neat thing in a neat is a not the right word but uh, an experience that only you can have in that moment and other people have their own moments and you know we kill enough pheasants and ducks and chucker training and hunting with the dogs that I guess maybe I've gotten a little calloused to taking a duck's life yeah and, and i still respect them and love for sure i i mean i there is nothing more than when I, the dog brings a bird back to like enjoy the sight of the bird and the feathers and the plumage and the sun 
hitting the feathers a certain way and the iridescence and there's every bird has a little nuance to it that I like to take in and enjoy um, versus just like throwing it in a corner or throwing it on a game strap and saying thanks for coming. Um, and I've definitely hunted with guys who are like that. And everybody's different in, you know, whatever. But to me, it's more, I don't know. It's like I love ducks. I, I love watching them. Yep. I love I like seeing them alive yeah. outside of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so, and I like seeing them alive during the season, but I still also like shooting them. And I think that that's hard for some people to understand that don't do what we do. And probably everybody listening to this podcast gets it. But, you know, they're still, if I, like, I'm going to throw out, Bob's opinion here but I think we all take a deep breath and like have a reverence and appreciation for the animals that we take and like the beauty and the fact that we actually took a life like you didn't just pull a trigger dog goes and gets it and bingo bango it's like you took something that was living two minutes ago and took its life away and now have a, some respect for it and then have enough respect for it to enjoy a great meal and feed the family and, and talk about what happened and how that got there and whatever. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just think it's really cool. I'm really proud of you for, for doing it yourself and, um, you know, pretty neat. So, all right. I'm, I think we can mosey on into some Instagram and Facebook questions that rolled in through the week. Uh, we're going to do a little bit quicker uh, podcast this a week podcast short a short cast of pods this week <laughs> um and then next week we should have some pretty sweet things lined up and a uh, special guest uh for all you listeners out there but in the meantime we had a lot of great questions rolling this week we're gonna rip through a few of them rapid style kevin hit me with number one brother a brown 1992 uh asked uh he or she has a year and a half old boykin. He's from South Carolina. I don't remember where he's from. We just assume he's from South Carolina. State dog, buddy. Southerner, maybe. Year and a half old boykin, and was wondering if it's too late to start training for hunting. Cool, great question. Um, actually, get this sort of often. People that get a dog think they want to hunt it, then life gets in the way, and then the dog's now a year and a half and doesn't have much training. Now can I start it? My answer is always, yeah. I mean, you can totally, there's no such thing as you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So year, year and a half, two, three, whatever, if the dog has it in them and loves to play fetch and loves to retrieve and loves to swim and all that good stuff, you can totally teach it to be a gun dog. Um, in that year and a half, though, there's a lot of things that could go right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, could have had a bad experience swimming, so now it doesn't like to get in the water. So there's things we do in that zero to year and a half um, in development of a good gun dog to help the process. But if things are going well, like the dog likes to swim or the dog likes to play ball uh, in the yard and is adventurous, you can probably take those attributes and teach it to be a good gun dog. Um, so, in essence, yeah, dude, take your time. It's not too late. Make sure the dog's got the foundations and is able to, like, 
yeah. get after it. And yeah, and maybe do it the right way. To, just because yeah. it's a year and a half old doesn't mean you should take it out with a gun. I mean, like, treat it as if it's a six-month-old puppy. Don't, just because it's older, automatically think it's going to be mature and just jump right into things. Pretend it's a six-month-old puppy, start from scratch, and build up. All right, next question. This is a good one. I like this one. So, Pepper 31 appreciate the question, has a young female that's in heat uh, and is wondering if he or she can still hunt her. Uh, even if there aren't any males around. So even uh, if maybe you're hunting by yourself, dogs in heat, what are some limitations? Like what would you suggest? What do you do with your dogs when they're in heat other than maybe we try and breed them? Right. All right. Really good question. And I am not a veterinarian, so I'm going to give you both my opinion and what I've done and then what my vet told me. So um, when my females were in heat, I would continue training. And I didn't worry about them getting into water and swimming for marks and doing whatever they wanted to do. Um, Obviously, they would steer clear of male dogs, which I just think that's a no-brainer for anybody. But long story short, I went on with life. Um, Some female dogs will get kind of quirky um i'm trying to like lack of focus or easily distracted or um all of a sudden like the greatest moody moody yeah no i won't say moody you can say moody (laughs) but i won't (laughs) i'll say i'll stick to that one so um they they just they'll they won't be themselves you can't put your finger on it but there's just something going on and you just chalk it up to she's in heat okay now that doesn't mean you shouldn't hunt her. It just means that if she goes squirrely on you on a mark, that might be because she's just feeling funny from all the hormones and things going on inside of her. So there are certain things we want to be concerned about and thoughtful of. The number one thing is called pyometra. And pyometra um, is defined as an infection in the uterus. It is considered a very serious and life-threatening condition that must be treated quickly and aggressively as per, uh, what is it, VCA hospitals. Basically, we Googled it, but a friend, several friends of mine, actually, within the last 12 months had a female that uh, came down with pyometra. And so it's an infection that gets inside of their uterus, and they're really susceptible, if not the only time I've ever heard of it is when they're in heat or recently bred. So when that female is in heat, her vagina is swollen and therefore water and bacteria, if they're playing around in the mucky mud, nasty water. And hunting. and Right, and hunting. Can go in and out of their vagina and cause an, inve- an infection in the uterus. And dog gets pyometra and all of a sudden the dog goes from hey doing okay to holy cow something's wrong we don't know what it is and uh both dogs that i know had to have um their uterus is taking out being spayed and almost both of them almost lost their lives so it's not something to monkey around with so when we thought memphis was bred she didn't end up taking but um when she was in heat and we were trying to breed her she was not swimming she was not running marks in water i basically took 
ultra care of her and her lady bits. Um, other dogs that come into heat, I've not had a problem with it, and nobody told me I shouldn't let them swim or do anything, and the vets were cool with that too. So it sounds like you just watch the dog yeah. and keep an eye on things and keep it away from males and just be mindful. Sure. And of and what's be mindful. Yeah. So. Potential, like what could happen, right? Right. Educate yourself. Educate yourself on those types of things. Ask your vet. And the other kicker is maybe hunting in a mucky, nasty, stagnant water yeah. marsh. Not okay, but maybe open water or river. Field hunting or Field something. hunting is okay. So those are the, the kind of suggestions I would give. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I still would maybe suggest contacting a vet. But Pyometra. That's a big one that you want to be worried about. Give other than Google. that, yeah. Other than that, you should be good to go. All right, um, Kevin. Next question. So our next question here is J Schwab, seventy six, uh, and is wondering about the different types of colors of labs. There's certainly a bunch out there. Um, are there in uh, he or she was wondering? Are there any certain colors of labs that are smarter than others? More driven? More excitable? More biddable? Um, there's a bunch out there. Talk to me about the different types of colors of labs. You've certainly worked with a bunch. I know you're kind of a black lab kind of guy. You have about a hundred of them, I feel like, at the kennel. But uh, talk to me about the types of colors of labs, your thoughts on them. I mean, what do you think? All right. So I think I know where you're going with this when you say there's a bunch of colors of labs. But in my book, and same with the AKC's book, there's yellow, chocolate, and black. That's it, folks. Three colors of Labrador Retrievers. The definition of a yellow lab in the AKC is a variation of shades of yellow. So that could be extremely light yellow to extremely dark yellow on the reddish side. Um, so now is that kind of like the fawn, fawn, fox, whatever? Like no, I about? think what you're thinking of fawn would be considered like a champagne or dudley and people breeders are marketing these dogs as something special gotcha. they're not special they're a yellow lab and this is something that i want to touch on with people to educate right so there's different factors in coat colors so they have genotypes and i'm not i'm not even going to pretend that i know which scientific way like i have an idea but i'm not like versed in it right so like if a black breeds with a black and all they can throw is black it's only black factored if a black who's only black factored breeds to a black that is yellow factored I'm 99.9% .9 sure they're only throwing blacks. If you breed a black that's yellow factored with a black that's yellow factored, you can have blacks and yellows. Now, to get to that whole like multiple color phases and stuff that Kevin's bringing up, that Dudley or that champagne BS that people breed and think is special, um, that comes from... If you breed two chocolate labs that carry the yellow factor, they're going to throw a, a yellow lab that has light skin features, basically like light around the eyes, light on the nose, like a liver color. Really, they're a pretty dog, 
Um, and they're a yellow lab. They're not anything but a yellow lab. So when people market them as something special, like a champagne or a fawn or a this or a that, dude, don't get blown, you know, up in your head. You bought a yellow lab, and I'm wicked happy for you because you got a cool lab that's yellow. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You didn't get something special. You just got a really good dog, and I'm. I want you to enjoy that dog and be proud of it. And that unspoken bond means the world to you as much as it does to me. And so I'm not knocking anybody's anybody's dog, but I just want people to be educated on when you see somebody market for a color, like. For instance, let's jump into the silver or charcoal labs now that we're on the topic. Yeah, sure. Which we do got to dance back around to the the smart. Are they factor. smarter or anything like that? Sure. But yeah. But the silver, charcoal, and that champagne color, they're all dilute genes. So a charcoal is a diluted black. A uh, silver is a diluted chocolate. And what that means is... There's le- chocolate Labradors that are purebred, got papers, right? They're AKC registered, but they carry a gene that's a mutation, and it's called the dilute factor, right? You can get it tested. Our dog, Boss, has been tested, and he does not carry this gene. So that means he do- he cannot pass it on to others, and he cannot produce silver labs. It's good that he doesn't have it, right? But then there are some people out there that are breeders, quote unquote, that want to breed silver labs and they're not AKC registered and they aren't worth twice as much as your normal lab. People just are selling them to sell them and make money on them. And so they're not doing things like health testing, hips, elbows, eyes, EIC, that exercise-induced collapse that we've talked about, central nuclear myopathy that we've talked about. There's diseases that these labs carry that we really all, all of us breeders that like give a crap are, are testing for, and we're putting a lot of time, money, and energy in breeding these dogs and making the breed better. And these people come in and are like, oh, it's a silver, boom. Put two dogs together that do this, yeah. and boom, we got a silver. And hey, it's two grand because there's they're rare, right? So, but what is the other than like, oh, there's not very many out there, and they have, they're a di- is it really just they're a different color? Yeah, that dude. people want. Yep, it's like Chevy came out with a special color, you know, Silverado this year, and there's only a limited edition of them, right? So there's a small quantity of silver labradors out there so they are marketing themselves as being super special and therefore they're jacking the price up and marketing them but they're not all they're breeding for is that color they're not breeding to benefit the breed they're not benefiting you and actually a lot of these silver labs which a lot of people may or may not care to do the research on they have a lot of skin problems and hips and joint issues and I've trained a couple that were a little squirrely. Like they just, yeah. People aren't breeding them for brains, trainability, instinct, desire, health clearances, joints. They're just breeding to make money, and that's what I got a problem with. Um, 
And so what I'd like to also touch on, I don't want to upset people because I'm guaranteed there's someone that's listening today that's got a silver lab and is like, F you, Bob. No, not me or you or your dog. I love that you got your dog and you're proud of it and you're happy with it and it might be the greatest dog on earth and I'm not judging you or your dog. I'm just judging the breeder who's not worrying about improving the Labrador Retriever breed, not doing the health clearances, and just trying to make a buck based on a specific color. So, you know, be weary of stuff like that. Um, sorry, yeah. to, I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think... It, up. Yeah, hey, uh, but it's interesting to hear the different opinions and the different thoughts on from somebody in the industry like what's going on because uh, one of our neighbors got a little silver lab and came over to like our parents house was all excited about their little puppy and i remember looking at it and thinking like it's a funky looking little chocolate because it's a silver right. so i so i get that but uh on a previous podcast we talked with barton ramsey of southern oak kennels um great dude check out that podcast it was awesome and one thing that i thought was really cool that he had said about uh breeding different dogs because he's certainly well versed in breeding different dogs is that he doesn't do it for colors he puts dogs together that are going to throw smart biddable talented puppies not well, this one's got this factor and is going to throw a right. real pretty fawn looking dog. And this one's going to throw a real pretty whatever. And so he'll have people contact him and say like, hey, I really want a light shade of red and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, like I, maybe a puppy will come out like that in right. the next couple of years. I don't know. I'll give you a call. He's but trying to I'm trying to breed dog. a great line of dogs and improve the Labrador, the exactly. his English, you know, the the English Labradors is his deal, but like British Lab, what did I say? English. Oh my bad. But you get my point of like, I, and I when he said that, I really respected what he had to say because it's trying to move everything forward and not focusing in on like the surface level. How pretty is the dog right. in your own opinion sort of thing and really right. just doing like the the marketability of what color the dog is. So yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, that that comes to like there's that's why there's kind of a division in Labradors right now too, where let's break it down. You've got an English lab, and that English lab is that big blocky round huge head short stubby big thick otter tail show dog and then you've got the american lab like memphis tall long lean athletic fast uh runs like a deer then barton and sok and wild rose and a bunch of other people are breeding british labs which originate from england scotland ireland the uk uk right and um honestly they're very similar to our american labs they don't look like a show dog they are very athletic um they tend to be on the smaller side compared to some of our american labs but 
Um, they're not much different than our American labs. Um, but you can visibly see the difference between an English lab and an American lab. Right. Um, and that division has been based on marketing and what certain people want. Us, quote unquote, American labs bred them for hunting and hunt tests and field trials. And then the English people, or excuse me, English lab breeders bred them for show dogs. And the show dog ring kind of wanted them a certain way too. And so those show dogs were being bred for looks. They weren't worried about nose. They weren't worried about desire to retrieve. Right. And so they be over gen- around a ring over generations. Right. They just lost some of that instinct that makes a Labrador a Labrador. And then arguably some of our American labs don't really look a lot like the classic Labrador from the early 1950s, 60s, 70s either. They're more greyhoundish. Their coats might not be very thick. Um, they just might not be exactly it, you could walk down the street and people would be like hey what what kind of dog is that no oh, it's a labrador really never seen one like that and so there has to be somewhere in the middle that we meet where the labrador is both beautiful healthy intelligent a lot of hunting desire um and a great family member and i think if a breeder puts all those things in to the basket good looks health trainability lots of drive you know they'll be a winner winner chicken dinner right. um let's get back to his question yeah, sorry so that i digress there no that i think it was a good healthy conversation about labs in general but yeah. so so he was asking like is there some a color with all smarter. the colors that we've talked about sure is there one that you would say is the smartest or the most biddable right, or the so we're going to automatically right? ixnay the non yellow chocolate and black sure because i would like for everybody to promote and and Oh, what's the word? Um, support? Support and not support breeders who are breeding silvers, but support people who are doing it right and doing their research and all that good stuff. So, anyways, yellow, chocolate, black, labs. And out of those three colors, because there's only three colors. <laughs> <laughs> is there? Is this like a personal preference sort of thing, though? No. Uh, so... I guess th- that's a, that's yeah. I my gotcha. I don't know uneducated so question. You're of, asking me if if it's a preference of which color smarter. Well, no. So our our Instagram question was: Is there one that is smarter? Is there one that is better? Is there one that is whatever? Right. My question and th- comment thought whatever. I guess I'm not really sure, but like, is is there one that is more? I don't know. What would I you know, choose, right? Like, I'm going to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, why don't you answer the question? Right now, if you were to look through AKC hunt tests and field trials at all the Labrador retrievers that are succeeding, you're going to see, and I'm not going to, I'm going to make up percentages right now, but 70% or 60% are black labs, 20, 15% are yellows. Then 10% are chocolates, and the rest of the percentage are your, like, Chessies and Goldens. Why and do you think that is? Minus co- the Chessies and Goldens. and Because like, it, yeah. it's just fact. 
Like you can go through. Uh, well, and yeah, look yeah at I get. I, I don't know that. the exact percentage, but do you think it's because more people have black labs, and so it's right. like one of those types so of swings? That's the part where I'm going to throw out my opinion on. Right. I'm not sure of this the answer, but the thought is black is the dominant gene. Gotcha. Therefore, there's more of them, and therefore, the pedigrees and the field champions and the master hunters and all these tend to be black because there's more of them right and because it's dominant there's just more to choose from and therefore you've got your upper echelon and then those upper echelon get bred a lot more because they're bad to the bone because, right and therefore you've got more offspring that yeah tend to, so does that make sense yeah it's like, no i got you i mean it's, it's kind of like, like rich yeah. people having hot kids it's like well, because the, the mediocre dude have... who's rich gets a hot wife, <laughs> and therefore he's got hot hot kids. That's how it goes. So the mediocre looking black lab gets a hot wife. I don't know. I'm I digress. I think you. Get I kind of I mean. see the the analogy you're going for. It's I not, think I think you can imagine. I wouldn't say it's it. the best analogy, but it's probably not the worst analogy. Right. No doubt. So. Then, with that being said, you've got you get more attention when you're the best. Sure, and it just so happens that more tend to be black because there's more of them. I would say, It'd I don't know if that. I'm just gonna say because there's more of them, there's more likelihood that they're gonna be the best. But it would be really interesting to see. But it comes down like to a line too. graph of like over the years, how many more is I'm it? Telling like you, a, it's like eighty twenty. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. Blacks to all the others. Wow. Well, you know what, Kevin. Homework. You're gonna find out all the colors in the last twenty years of Dang. all that stuff. Yeah. Sucks to be you. But that's gonna be an interesting thing. So then so my thought is blacks are just more popular and have a higher likelihood of success because of the large number, plus good dogs are getting bred and if the good dogs are black, they're just getting bred more. Then you got yellows and chocolates. And there's like a what's it called? Uh old saying that chocolates just aren't as smart and I don't buy it like if you get a good dog out of a really good pedigree where parents were successful in the hunt and hunting games and they were healthy and you do all the stuff that I literally just rant and raved about right um you're going to get a good dog no matter what color it is so I don't if you were to take a litter and all three colors are hanging out in that you know you had a mom and a dad and they produce black yellow and chocolate i don't think the chocolate's going to be dumber than its yellow sister and the yellow sister is going to be just a little bit dumber than the black brother i think they're all going to be darn equal but that's because they shared the same parents that were right. pretty cool so even if you got like a neapolitan looking letter uh, it's it's more so because it's the same litter and the same parents and genetics mm-hmm. whatever so yeah, I, I think strongly encourage people to look at pedigree and parents right. and grandparents, right? I always always say that. Yeah, stack the deck in your favor. But so moving ahead, So I guess the answer to this question like, is like if I had to tell you black's probably a strong bet just judging by all the shenanigans that I just said. But I don't think you can go wrong. I don't think chocolates are dumber than blacks. I just think it comes down to pedigree and the parents. But and the same argument, the right if, like that's saying that that if somebody is looking at a litter of dogs, it's it doesn't matter if it's a yellow or a black. It's from the same litter, so it has the same mm-hmm. pedigree and same things like that. So yeah, I'd agree with that. So 
I guess it like the step further would be is Jay Schwab twenty seventy six looking at several different litters of puppies from completely different parents with completely different pedigrees and what colors from those are they looking at? Because then the question is more of not the color and more of the pedigree, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's, and I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm (laughs) interpreting it happens. I'm interpreting this more of like blondes, brunettes, redhead sort of thing. Like which one is smarter? It's, there isn't really an answer to that. Like it depends it, on it, how they're raised exactly. and the parents. There, there's I mean, so many other variables. Right. You can't just say like, "Oh yeah, brunette people way smarter." Because, but I still am going to stand by the percentage of field champions, amateur field champions, master hunters. The percentage is still sh- yeah. So- but you know what? You could still you could still be like, "Uh, well, the Kevin, presidents of the United numbers, States dude. are most likely to be brunette, and so if you're brunette, therefore you are more likely to be the president than yeah. But technically, that still would be true, dude. Yeah, but that that's kind of a so wild. Still true. It's like it, there's no there's nothing that it's like. It's like if there's a hundred dogs that are field champions and eighty percent of them are black, that is what it is. Yeah. No, I. I guess I follow you. Yeah, I don't have the answer. I just am showing you numbers, and numbers that I don't see. You're gonna look them up for next <laughs> I am week. Gonna bro. look them up. But you know what's interesting is like, do you think in the future that that will change? Like, there will mm. be a swing where maybe culturally people will want more yellows rather than black labs, and so we'll start so breeding we'll see an uptick. So we'll right. So so we'll see an uptick, and then that might change that's kind of what i was getting to before with like is there a line graph of like the number of dogs within the industry that are working and doing different things and like yeah i don't know people to, that would be an interesting i don't s- set of data i guess sure i don't know the answer but that I would be either. cool well that wraps up another episode of the gun dog chronicles thank you for listening be sure to subscribe and hey don't forget Friday, Black Lab Friday. Use your podcast promo code uh, podcast and save between 10 and 20% off. Kevin and I both appreciate it. We got wingers, e-collars, all that stuff. A lot of new gear. Thank you again and good night. Hey, join our community. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer. Join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. The link is in the description. Click that link. Join the community. We've got tons of great videos, tons of great content, and you can ask me more questions. So join it. Enjoy it. We did it for you, and you're helping us produce this show. So thank you so much to that community. Get in, get out, let's roll. Patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.